Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Psychic's Thoughts. Today, we're going to be discussing an interesting topic in the gaming world. And um, it's funny, I started this episode yesterday, and I had one idea of where I was going, a topic I wanted to cover. And then I started just, like, talking for 20, 30 minutes on this other topic. I'm like, you know what? This other topic is better. (laughs) And can still tie into some of the points I was going to make on... On the first topic I, I was going to talk about, but isn't as interesting. So, here we are. I scrapped the 30 minutes of that, me kind of finding my footing and figuring out, oh, this is more interesting as I'm speaking, to be a little more clear and concise for you all today. So, I've talked a lot about gaming, right? This channel is, I'd say, 85-90% of that. 5% film and, and music and some of the stuff I create, which please go support me at Psychic34 on Instagram. Um, my latest album, Dragon, is out now, uh, streaming everywhere. And uh, my latest short film, A Way Out, is on my YouTube, Psychic Productions. So please go check all of that out and support when and where you can. There is a super link in my Anchor bio as well. I appreciate that. So... um community in gaming is something I've touched on, mentioned, discussed before, but not in depth. And it's high time I finally discuss it more in depth. Now, almost every time I discuss an initial review of a video game or do a overview of this part or this thing within the gaming industry, I mention or touch on the community, whether localized or not. And by localized, I don't mean a LAN party that everybody gets together and bumps PCs together. I'm, uh, I was never old enough for that, you know, when that was a thing. I was one when that was happening. (laughs) So when I mean localized, I mean within that specific game, within that specific structure. And then, of course, when I talk at a more macro level of the gaming community as a whole, and they're two separate entities that are very, very similar, but need to be looked at and sometimes analyzed and and revered differently. And the best reason for that is you have a wide spectrum of gamers, a wide spectrum of games, and a way to play. And that's incredible, right? More options, more freedom more ways to play and connect and and experience video games in the community the way you can and the way you want to. I say that's better for everyone. It just adds a little more variety and variables to when analyzing. So that's why I'm going to be bouncing between these terms because sometimes I can be talking about this community and, and of course, as a disclaimer, as you should know, I'm talking from some general research or information I've uh, done, data I've done, or more so, um, most of this will be observation. From my personal experience, playing and uh, looking. Now, sometimes I'm looking at metrics. Sometimes I'm looking, okay, how many concurrent players? Sometimes I'm reading the news headlines. These players are leaving for this reason. Sometimes I'm looking at data tables on Statistica and, and other sites. Okay, this is, or, um, you know, 
watching the reports or the, the quarterlies from the publishers. Okay, we're having this many uh, players, this many millions of players joined, left reports, such like that. Right. I know how to do statistics. I'm not great at it, and I don't want to go to the trouble for that. I'm not a statistician. I'm just a gamer enthusiast and a nerd and someone with some decent thoughts on the matter. So, um, so yeah, just know that majority of these things, of course, with everything I talk about, they're my thoughts, right? So my opinions, my observations. But I'm not trying to feed information that is wrong. Of course, if it is, you can always let me know. Um, take everything with a grain of salt. Go do your own research. Double check it. Don't take everything I say as pure fact. A lot of the times it's from my personal experience. And um, I'm not trying to deceive anyone. So when I say a certain number or something... I'm either approximating within that range, that estimated range, or I'm genuinely speaking on something I've experienced personally or seen or I've heard from the community, right? Looking at blog posts, texting people, keeping kind of a foot in an ear within the social uh, aspect of that community. But that doesn't mean I'm a developer, I'm a publisher, that doesn't mean that's the hard data and that doesn't mean that it's absolutely the way it is. So. Please know that going forward, and that goes for everything I talk about in this channel, but especially on something that's a little more vague and at a variable, such as uh, community metrics. So, um, with that being said, let's get into the gaming community from a larger standpoint, from my personal experience, and from individual and direct experiences within games and how much it matters and how it impacts the uh, gaming landscape. Video games is a unique thing in many ways. From the artistry, the connectivity, the immersion, the engagement, all of it. It's very unique. There's nothing quite like it. And yet it borrows or marries a lot of concepts, themes, and art forms and sciences that have already been explored or already uh, standalones, right? The marriage of writing, of course, or adaptation of of writings. Um, you know, the marriage of filmmaking and theater with blocking and directing. And, you know, when there's cinematics, someone has to direct that, right? And film gets it from theater, so on. Um, the marriage of television in, in the sense of sometimes how it's written scripted especially with episodic um, or scheduled roadmap content releases can be very similar music right music and sound design of course is always integral to game development computer sciences engineering programming coding right and then visual arts from graphic arts to storyboard concepts all the way around to acting and voice acting, to camera work, to purely engineering, and then of course to franchises, to community, to marketing, to social media, to kids, to adults, to parents, to elderly, to all kinds of devices. a growing art form hence a multimedia entertainment system and every year it expands 
Now, that's not to say it's always good. Things go bad. It's not perfect. There are a lot of fucked up things. A lot of areas that need to be looked at. There's a lot of places with social stigma still around gaming and video game players, right? But as a whole, in the past 10, 15 years, and from my personal experience being a gamer at a young age and growing up, it wasn't as stigmatized as it was for, like, my dad when he was playing arcade games, but... Funny enough, I started on those games, too. He got me started on those. So my first games were Pac-Man, Galaga, Donkey Kong, the classics, right? Arcade cabinet stuff. We had one, a mini one. Actually, I started with the small one that you plug in the TV, the red, white, and uh, yellow um, TV cables. I forget the name of it specifically right now, of course. I literally just set one up, set a soundbar up with that feature. You'd think I'd remember what the hell it, it's called. <laughs> anyway... Um, I was at five years old. You know what I mean? That's wild. Anyway, so that's where I started. My dad wanted me to start with the simple mechanics and learn to appreciate that. And it's ones that he understood, right? So he could teach me it better, right? And then the graduation from that when I was six and a half. It's about a year and a half later or so. Uh, was my was GameCube it came out around that time? I was I was born in two thousand, so it's pretty easy to track. Um, maybe I was six. I don't know. I don't remember. I think it was Christmas, maybe. So maybe it was right when it came out. I believe it came out in two thousand six, if I'm not mistaken. Though I could be getting my time frames a little little mixed up. Um, but yeah, GameCube is my first console, and I actually have a podcast uh, episode on the GameCube and how it impacted me and how much I love it and how much I miss it. Huh? Why am I an idiot? God, I got rid of my Wii, which did backwards compatibility to my GameCube. I got rid of my GameCube when I was young. Like, I didn't know any better, right? How would I? Because uh, the Wii came out, and then the Wii was backwards compatible with GameCube games. So I kept my games, and I actually kept my original GameCube controller. And I gave my GameCube to a friend of mine who didn't, you know, didn't have uh, video games and wanted one. So. And then, like an idiot, when I moved at uh, age 11... Uh, I gave my Nintendo DS as well as my Wii and all my GameCube games away to multiple people who couldn't afford them. I'm not a good person. That's not That doesn't deem me as a good person. It deems me as an idiot. I mean, I'm glad they have it and they got to experience the fun, but I'm, it was my first video game collection and I got rid of it. That's one real easy thing. Like, of course, you know, if you could go back in time and change the world, what would you do? Oh, I'd do a lot of things. I'd make this world a more safe, fair, and equal place for all people. But personally, <laughs> like, beyond the global stuff of helping humanity, the first thing I would do, tell myself don't sell the games. I'd be fine giving the Wii away, and then later I could buy a fucking GameCube, which are super expensive now. Or just a Wii, which isn't as expensive. You know, you could buy a used Wii and fix it up, or a new refurbished Wii for like a hundred bucks, give or take. So that's not too bad. So that way that person still gets a hardware and a few Wii games, but... And I would keep a few Wii games, but man. GameCube is something else, and they now sell for like a hundred bucks a pop. They're expensive now. Uh, we're talking Mario Kart Double Dash, we're talking... 
I was too young and too stupid to know the great games. Like, I didn't have Smash, right? I was just... I didn't get into those games. I played all kinds of weird games. But, um... A lot of sports games. A lot of baseball games. MLB 2K6. Uh... Mario Superstar Baseball, Mario Kart Double Dash, handful of others, plenty. Lego Star Wars, the original trilogy, oh, work of art. I actually have it on Xbox now, but it's it's not the same. It is, it's the exact same, but it's just, you know, nostalgia purposes. So, yeah, GameCube was my start, and then so on and so forth. It wasn't until I was 10... Well, Wii was a little more of an introduction, but it wasn't until I was 10 where 10 and 11 when I got an Xbox 360 and therefore within the first year of having an Xbox, I had it for a year and then by 11. So I think I got it when I was 10 for my 10th birthday. Or maybe it was for Christmas, I don't know. And then when I turned 11, or right around then, uh, I was allowed to have Xbox Live <laughs> because I moved. First time I moved across uh, to a different state, so all the friends I used to play with I couldn't, unless I had online connection, and that's that's where it all started. My experience with online community, and of course, for video games, what's unique is a community could be felt and experienced very locally, and I don't mean localized within the game; I mean locally within your home or wherever you're playing. You know, split screen co-op, playing with a buddy. When you're a kid, especially growing up in the mid to to, uh, to early to mid 2000s, 2010s, I would say that's probably peak, peak experience of split-screen co-op fun. I don't think there is a better decade between 2000 and 2010 Um, for video games that are fun in split-screen co-op and doable. And of course, when you're young, you have the patience. You can play that same goddamn game for forever. But from Lego Star Wars to Mario Kart, all the way through to any Call of Duty, Halo. Huh. Halo and Call of Duty, when those games were out in between 2010 and 2012, when I did have friends over, man, we could be hours. Also, Minecraft came out then. Which is wild. Minecraft came out when I was 10. Talk about a community. I didn't play it as much online. I mostly played it alone. Or with my buddies in split screen. And we built the craziest worlds. So my point is that uh, community from the local sense is incredible. Playing Call of Duty Black Ops 2 split screen. Or Borderlands 2. Or Halo Reach. Or Lego Star Wars. Mario Kart Double Dash. Um, Minecraft, Portal 2, it's probably one of the best split-screen experiences you'll ever get. All of those games are, for one, incredible. Whether you're playing alone, online, or split-screen. All of those games offer those options. And then, of course, for that time, when you're young, man, it's everything. It really is an incredible time. But I, but, but by 11, I started to get into the online community experience. And it was still very 
focused because it wasn't it was playing with random people online but it was I was partying up with buddies this is still in that transition we started playing Halo Reach split screen at each other's houses then I moved right so Halo Reach Black Ops 2 a couple others right Borderlands 2 so on and so forth I never played Gears of War I know don't kill me I I don't I have no problem with it I just it's one of those games that I, I played other games. I tried other games. You know, I'm a gamer, and I play a metric fuck ton of video games. And Gears of War is just one that I was too young to get into when it was out and popular. And then when it kind of fell off the map, and it wasn't as popular after the first three, and took a while to kind of bounce back. By that time, I was playing other games and just never got into it. Thought, okay, it'd be too much to catch up now. I'm like, okay, I'll put it on my bucket list later. And they keep making more, and I'm like, fuck. <laughs> so, I've got some buddies who love that game, so maybe I'll have to get them to get me into it and, and teach me. I've had two or three friends like, You ever play Gears of War? How are you a lot? How are you a gamer? I don't know, man. Teach your own, right? I don't love every type of video game. I love a lot of games. I love video games as a whole. But, you know, not everything's for me. But I think Gears of War would be. I just never played it. Anyway. So, um, playing with my friends till, you know, for a couple hours every night, which I now do as well, especially increased when COVID hit, because I'm, I'm used to playing alone and I'm fine with that, but, and by alone, I mean, you know, by myself with no friends, no one I know, but playing online with other people. And I've made some incredible friends, some of my best friends just by meeting them online. For the most part, actually, now as an adult, my best friends, all but a one or two, are all online. Majority of them are. From meeting online and, and chatting on this and that platform, and then strengthening that bond, gaming every night or every other night, or you know, just consistently more so. like one of the things I enjoy to do most on my free time. When I have time to relax, especially at night, that's what I do, people. Especially during the summer when I can stay up super late and be irresponsible. Be like a fucking child. I stay up and I game. That's what I do. Or I write. It's one or the other. Or I do both. Like a maniac. Sometimes I watch TV, but usually um, if I'm not gaming or relaxing, I'm writing songs, albums, movies, planning for whatever work I have ahead, if I have any. And then during the day, I used to game during the day when I have nothing to do. And now somehow I always find something to do. So that's okay. I'm being productive. I'm doing what I love. This is one of those things. I could be playing Oculus right now. Playing my new VR game I got that I do want to do a podcast on eventually when I get more time on it. I could be doing that right now, and yet I decided to be productive. <laughs> I do enjoy doing this, of course. So, yeah, community is essential. It is the fiber of a game, and if the community is strong, the game can still live on regardless of how the game does. But that only takes it so far. Community isn't the single aspect of what keeps a game alive, and it just depends on the game. It used to be this thought that if it's a single-player only game, the community can be strong, but it's 
there's no interactivity between that community within the game itself, within the parameters of that said game, so there's no way to really worry, expand, or justify prioritizing that. I think Elden Ring had a great example of saying, no, nah, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, in Elden Ring you could do PvP. Yeah, when you have a buddy you can signal them and co-op, but let's be honest, it's not great. Like, it's not, it is a single-player game with an afterthought of some multiplayer. Thank God, because the multiplayer, when it works and when it when you can do it with somebody, it's wonderful, and you get used to it, but it can be better, can be smoother, but more importantly, it's not the sole design of it. It's not like a multiplayer lobby for Call of Duty. Right, so sometimes we have to look at games with that in mind. Or modes of a game. When you look at Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2019, you can't look at the campaign and compare it to the multiplayer suite. And if you do, you're gonna fuck yourself over. Some people just want to play the campaign. Some people just want to play multiplayer. And that's okay. Some people want to do both. But multiplayer and community is an important aspect. And whether or not you're directly experiencing that community, like interpersonally within the game, within the match you're playing, knowing that there is a community, and if you're tapped into it via social media or other outlets, that can make a huge difference on how you play. From the knowledge you gain, from the general experiences, from possibly people and friendships you make, beyond to the point where um, you also uh, feel more involved. Human beings are social creatures. We all have varying levels and interactions with social engagement and per preferences to such. But we're social beings. And when positive reinforcement towards these social engagements happen, it strengthens our bond with the activity, right? It's a very simple premise. If you have a good experience going out to the movies with friends, even if the movie wasn't great, or hell, even if it was, hopefully it is, then you're going to want to do it again. The only downside to this all, to a positive social engagement, is when you don't have it, it can make the solo engagement a little flatter, a little more dull. It can. It doesn't mean it will. In fact, you can, you can get something else out of it. You can enjoy the same activity alone as you do with friends and enjoy them for different reasons. I think that's healthy. I'm an only child. I'm an introvert. I'm, I move around a lot. I'm very used to doing things independently, and I'm very comfortable with that. I can play video games by myself and have a world of fun. I could be on my own devices. I don't mean literal devices. I mean I could be on my own doing my own thing for days without social, without a lot of social engagement. Of course, I'm, you know, I have a girlfriend and we're long distance, so you know. And I have some friends I text and keep up with. So I, that, but I mean, like, I don't have to do stuff with people always, and especially in person. I don't do that very often, if ever. 
Not because I don't want to, just opportunities haven't always lined up the way that that would happen for me. But for online engagement, it does. And so the whole notion and the stigma and the misinformation around gamers are, you know, that whole stereotype. Gamers are fat, lonesome slobs who aren't productive and sit in their basement and play alone. On the contrary. Gamers are everybody, right? And they're becoming everybody. Um, it's expanding and it's diversifying, which is great to see. It's important in the community. And gamers are not always alone. They can be. Oh, for sure. They definitely can be. And they can also, you know, they can fit that stereotype. I mean, those stereotypes come from a place of truth. But let's just be honest with ourselves. It doesn't happen like that usually. Gamers can be in better shape than you and me. They could be in worse shape than you and me. Who cares? That's their own choice. That's their own lifestyle. Hopefully whatever they're doing is best for them and doesn't hurt anyone else. That's what I say with everybody. As long as you're doing what's best for yourself and the people around you and you are not actively harming somebody, whether that be mentally, emotionally, physically, you know what I mean? Then, by all means, keep on doing you. Who am I to say? Right? And it's not even my job to intervene if you are, but I would... But if I need to, I, you know what I mean? Like if you're doing something that's actively hurting somebody, I, I will intervene if I, if I can, if it's appropriate, if it's safe. Say, yay, you know, stop that shit. Not, you're not being good right now. <laughs> Don't be a dick. Essentially, that's it. You could be curt. You could be sharp. You could be blunt. That doesn't mean you're a dick. I'm that way. You could be brutally honest. I don't think being I think brutally on brutal honesty is mistaken as passive aggressive or rude because people use honesty to to do that. In in American culture and society we villainize honesty when it's right at our face. But we honor honesty when it's put in words, put in writing, put in art. Oh, you know, that character on that show is so honest. I love it. She's just being her. He's just being him, you know. Um, I don't get that. I'm always brutally honest. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be insensitive to whatever that individual is going through. I'm just telling them how I see it. And if I need to backpedal or explain something or, or be less harsh on my tone, I'll try to fix it. But it doesn't change what I'm saying. I have nothing to deceive people with. I don't care enough. I just tell them how I see it, and and we go forward. I feel like it's more work to, to not be yourself and not be true to who you are and what you think and what you believe. Of course, there's times and places where you don't always need to say everything at full honesty. It doesn't mean you're not honest. It just means not the time and place. I know it's rich coming from me. Anyone who knows that's like, uh, Sai, that's rich. You never know when to shut the fuck up. You always say something at the wrong time. You're right about that. So, anyway. But my point is, I've always had luck and better friendships built and easier to manage friendships because I've moved around a lot through social online interaction. My best, almost all my best friends have been made that way. 
in the past 10 years. So, um, so yeah, I think that's an important aspect to remember. And gaming is the easiest way to have that. There's, I'm, from my experience, there's no better way. Yeah, social media is great. But as soon as that person logs out of Instagram or isn't looking at their phone, and it's just talking, and it can be great. I mean, talking is everything. It's communicating. When you have a mic and a headphones, and you're playing a game, first of all, it makes talking easier. Because if you don't feel like talking, you're not sitting in awkward silence, you're not waiting for the person to respond. You're playing a goddamn game, and you're trying to accomplish this objective. And sometimes you just play the game. Sometimes you don't talk about everything, but usually you talk about stuff. Whatever. It can be about the game. It doesn't have to be. It invites conversations. It invites points to be made. And it allows us to have fun and play and be social regardless of who you are, where you are, your physical limitations. Right? We can't meet everybody in the world at the same time can't afford it you may not have the means you may not feel comfortable may not be safe and it's difficult in a game everybody's in the same room the world is connected lobby by lobby and it's a beautiful thing so let's get into some uh, examples on specific games and their community well first i want to get let me first Touch on the point of why game developers, why that's important for them to remember community. That's more vital. And then we'll get into specifics. So, community, 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 right? Game developers often know how vital this is, especially in an online or multiplayer, uh, you know, setting. Call of Duty is infamous and i know oh my god he talks about it so much well because they've lasted so long they're the longest lasting with the amount of players with the financial success and with the marketability so they're the easiest to analyze and compare because they've been around for 20 years they put out they've put out more games than any other single franchise at that level at that popularity at that financial uh you know gross at that general uh, populist knowledge, right? The, the mass knows about Call of Duty, even if they're not gamers. You know what I mean? So, it's always a good benchmark. And there's a reason for it. Call of Duty is a phenomenal franchise. And a lot of the games are incredible. They're groundbreaking. They changed the industry. From 2007 to 2012, we're looking at a Call of Duty dominance. Some of the greatest first-person shooter games ever made, and three or four of them are under the Call of Duty banner, right? But what they innovated on is what Halo put in place and what Call of Duty and Halo fought for dominance in the early 2000s, as well as plenty of other games, multiplayer interactivity. Whether it's a very, very localized setting with a LAN party where you just push your Xbox or PCs together and plug Ethernets in and connect it all locally to, to play with each other. Or with the uh, onboard internet and Wi-Fi access introduced later um, to play wirelessly across the world. 
and that technology has only improved on the sense of well games have improved in terms of quality and graphics and right and performance as well as the connectivity the ability to connect further in a more secure way with better latency lower latency right it's been getting better and i think game developers need to understand that community and interactivity and socialization is a pillar to game design even if your game is designed to play single player now if you're like call of duty you have a very good system in place where you can make a single-player campaign mode, which is always great if there's an option for a co-op, at least with one other buddy if you want. That's good. But prioritize single-player. Then a multiplayer suite. That allows a slew of things. Multiplayer suites in COD and Halo used to be phenomenal, and they still are great in certain ways, but they used to be great because they allowed different ways to play. First of all, they had a fuck-ton of game modes, fuck-ton of maps. They're all really fun, polished mechanics for the most part. Yeah, they're bugs. It's not everything's perfect, but it was pretty well running, pretty smooth. And they allowed many different ways. You could play alone, of course, and play in a lobby with people, meet people, talk. You could talk in-game. You could, of course, invite them to a party if you if you befriend them. You know, you can add them as friends on whatever platform you're using. That's all good, right? You could play with buddies. You could team up on with up to teams of four or eight or more. Um... You could have one friend over and then three other buddies join online. So you could, you two could be split screen. You could have a guest and you could still play online with other people. That's incredible, by the way. The fact that not only did they figure out how to make that work mechanically at the time, but also that they made it a well-known feature. So it didn't eliminate the likelihood of people who have one buddy over or a couple friends over but still have that one or two friends who can't quite be there still be able to play with them if they're able to that's ingenious that's thinking community first within the design and the philosophy of the game itself we'll get into out of the game and design and philosophy because there's still community outside the game that you also have to still attend to if you're a developer or a publisher that I think is important and then um, and then there's sometimes an offline mode, and by that I mean PvE, player versus enemy, usually against the AI, zombies or spec ops or special missions or wave-based whatever, survival. And you could play that split screen, of course, or online with the buddies or a mix. That's a trifecta. That allows replayability, that allows diversity, that allows people who may get tired of playing multiplayer say, oh, well, let's play survival. Let's play zombies for a bit. That keeps them in your game just a little longer. Because once they're done with all that, they're like, all right, we're switching games. Or they get offline. But if they don't plan on getting offline and they want to keep playing together, they'll we'll, people will switch games on you. And if you're a game dev, you don't want that. <laughs> you want people to stay in your game. Especially if you're an online game that prioritizes that. Because the longer, the more people you have online and the longer they're logged in, the better. And I don't just mean per game session, I mean over time. If they keep coming back, keep playing your game. Elden Ring is a phenomenally designed game, through and through. 
It's an incredible single player that keeps you wanting to play more. It is expertly crafted. And it has multiplayer. And for a From Software game, considering they're pretty small compared to something like Infinity War or Treyarch, you know, in comparison, they're, they're quite small and they don't have the infrastructure to make a multiplayer feature game. Not to that level. And they're not trying to. Elden Ring is a single-player experience with the added benefit of invasions for PvP, little PvP duels, and you can play against bosses and missions and help each other through dungeons with a buddy. Up to four people total you can summon. It uses in-game stuff, and it takes a second, and it's not always perfect, and it can be a little finicky, but for the most part, it works great. But it's limited, and it's intentionally designed to be limited. It's not limited just because of its hardware, though I do feel that has a part of it. But um, it's limited because when you summon a player to, to join you, they're in your world. Now, of course, when they die, they don't lose their runes, which is nice. Very nice feature. And when they die, they're, But when they die, or if you die, they're sent back right from where they were summoned. If you die, you lose your runes. If one of you dies, you still that person is disconnected and they have to rejoin into... They have to be resummoned. The summoning item to activate, not to be summoned, but to summon somebody to host it, is a consumable. It's not a difficult consumable. It's not hard to get, but it's just another unnecessary hurdle. It takes time. You gotta go pick early flowers or buy them or collect them somehow. Not difficult, just tedious. And then, um, and when, and you could be with that person for a very long time. You can't ride your steed, so you have to take everything on foot. You can't, they can't rest or even find that side of grace. So, I get not being able to rest there, sorta. They have half the amount of resources, so their health and uh, FP flasks are halved. Their power is scaled to your power. So if you're more powerful, they're at max normal power in terms of damage and all their stats. If you're less than them, they're scaled down a percentage value to be near towards yours. And finally, the bosses and everything are not quite always doubled, but a little stronger. A little stronger in their health pool, so they can handle two full players fighting them, which is fair. And then, on top of all that, once you kill a boss of any kind, great land, um, actual, one of the main bosses, that person's sent back anyway, afterwards. And they collect the rewards and reap the benefits, and it doesn't progress over in their world, they still have to do it. So, yeah, it's a feature, and it's super fun, and it and it can go a long way, and it, you can still get help, and it, it does elevate the experience. It's a great single-player game. I play the first 100 hours alone, and I play the next 100 hours with a buddy. Both are great for different reasons. But I will say, playing with a friend is more fun. With a friend who cares and who plays it well, you know, is way more fun. And so if they just had some better features that integrated made that a little smoother, at least by New Game Plus, at least by the time you beat the first game, if it took off some of these handicaps and said, okay, you've already beaten the game, so now just have fun with your friend, that would be a nice addition. Allow us to ride our steed, allow us to be in the game 
for longer. So if someone dies, they just send it back to their point. Allow us to at least discover the sites of grace. Allow us to kill multiple bosses and fully explore the, the lands between together. Just be a fully integrated co-op experience like so many other games of 2022 and on. Why not? Stuff like that. But that's okay because, you know, where Elden Ring falls short in some of the gameplay mechanics, they exceed in the outside of the game. And that's the next point I want to make within this segment. The community engagement and interaction is... It's, it's most important within the game, don't get me wrong. Even in a single-player game with multiplayer features. Now, if it's just a dead-on solo single-player game, of course, with no multiplayer interaction or features, which is very rare now, and I don't even think it's advisable, because even Elden Ring is a perfect single-player game, in my opinion, for, for what it is. It's one of the best out there, and perfectly fine to play 500 hours alone. It is just that good. However, it's also very good to play with a friend, so there's no reason not to have that. You know what I mean? It doesn't take away from the experience, in my opinion. It doesn't make it any easier. It can, but it really doesn't. It's still challenging as shit. It can, though. It can, it can definitely make certain things easier and less tedious, but... Yeah, it makes things easier. I'll say that. Yeah, for sure. Especially if the player is competent and good, but... It's not always the case. It's not a guaranteed easy playthrough. It's still a challenging game. But Elden Ring excels in community outside of game, and that and that's an aspect that I think has been falling very, very short. Integrated multiplayer features are great. They they sometimes fall short. Sometimes they're great. Who knows? I am gonna break this up and just go into a whole separate segment uh for this point. Crossplay is also important to me. Uh, having mul different multiplayer features and ways to play is vital going forward, but that's all in-game stuff. We'll go, we'll circle back around to that, but for now, let's get into outside of the game, the community, the social media, the networking, the roadmap, the communication between publishers, devs, and the community, the interaction, how vital that is, especially to the multiplayer landscape. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you're all doing well. So we've discussed... The importance of social engagement, community in games in general. But now I want to touch on a topic of gaming uh, community outside of the actual literal video game. And this is important for developers more so... Excuse my dog in the background. It's going clickety-clackety for attention. Uh, this is more important for developers than it is for you guys to hear, but, um, you know, what I say I think is important across the board for entertainment, for understanding, um, marketing, and I try to make it so not only do I have nuggets of trivia or interesting facts, but just some observations that I think could help better connect and mesh and articulate some of the things that take a lot of time for us to really think about. I've seen YouTube videos. I've heard people say, oh, I don't like this about the market, this about video games, whatever. And that's perfectly fine. But it's still a human experience because it's still being designed, created, and enjoyed by humans. And I think remembering that, much to like film and, and music and other mediums of art across the board, 
needs to be looked at like that. But like I've said before, and I'll keep saying again, and the reason why I love video games, one of the many reasons, um, is because of its interactivity. The engagement and the player agency. Film is one of my great loves of life. I'm a filmmaker, right? So I, I don't like when people compare video games to films. There are a lot of similarities. There are a lot of things you can compare. And I have no problem with like comparing certain mechanics or understanding where certain things were, you know, come from. But to say that, to compare them like they're on equal footing is like comparing, you know, a book to a movie. You can't do it. They're both incredible in their own regard. A book allows your own mind to create the scene and envision. And what that does is it makes it more personal because it's coming from your perspective, your emotions, your experiences. A book also can have way more detail and information to give you, right? And it's not to say books are easy. It's not to say, oh, it's just, you know, you can have an infinite amount of pages. No, books still have to read meet its parameters still have to make sense have to be edited and cleaned up and you know much like a film it's why adaptations of books that people have loved uh will never the movies will never be as good well that's not how i thought of it well good on you that's okay it's not how it's that's how you know a handful of people the the writer the the screenplay adapter whomever that may be, hopefully, and usually it can be the original author of the book, which is always great, but it's not always the case. Um, but it's just better that way. The person who wrote the book, if they also adapt the screenplay, you know, obviously that's better. It's coming straight from the source who created it. And then the director, you want the director to not have only read the book, but have loved the book. The kind that read the book and wanted to make a movie, not been thrown the book their way and had to make a movie about it. You know what I mean? And then um, the producers, the executive producers financing it, and then hopefully the hand, the cast and crew. Hopefully they all read the book either beforehand and loved it on their own merit. Because when you read it, knowing you have to read it for a requirement for the film... I have a feeling, I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling that that may may muddy the relationship a little bit. May not make it as genuine as passionate. But who's to say? I mean, maybe you read it because it's an assignment, because you need to for work, and you love it. I mean, that happens all the time in school for people, for myself included. I had to re- I've had to read, whether by my parents or by school, I've had to read many books I didn't want to read. And I've read many books I wanted to read. And sometimes the ones I wanted to read were dog shit. And then some of the times the ones I didn't want to read became my all-time favorites. I'm a, I'm a nerd for classic, uh, you know, school literature. The ones that they, some of them. And, uh, you know, I fucking, it's weird. I loved Beowulf, the book, not the movie. Uh, I loved, um... I actually found Canterbury Tales pretty interesting, but I, it's different. Uh, I love Old Man in the Sea. It's one of my favorite books. And I absolutely love Of Mice and Men. Outsiders is great. Uh, you know, all these classic ones that they, that may, they may have you read in school. 
Um, but then again, when I was a kid, Percy Jackson, that was my shit. Ready Player One is probably my all-time favorite book. Uh, Armada is great, too. Uh, Ready Player Two is good. Uh, it's different, but it's it's quite good. Um, Malcolm X is one of my all-time favorite books. Had to read that for school, and I couldn't have been happier to read that. At first, I was I was going through a depressive phase, so I didn't really want to read it that much. You know, I was kind of like just skimming over it and just kind of taking notes on what I thought would be probably the most important. And I was just fucking up the quizzes because the quizzes were really like, you got to read this. I said, all right, all right, fine. And I really got into it, you know, after the first two or three chapters that I was kind of, you know, first week or two where I was just kind of seeing if I can, uh, you know, skate on past. And I I fully read it and I went back and reread the chapters I missed. And I just absolutely loved it. But the film is phenomenal. The film is so good that it's one of the only instances where I've seen a film. I'm like, wow, I you really don't have to read the book. Because the film is almost word by word what the book is. Not quite. I mean, the book is still pretty incredible to read on its own. Of course, it has more detail. I'm not going to say it's better. But that's the point. You don't want to compare that I love the book of Ready Player One. I also really, really love the movie Ready Player One. I think the movie Ready Player One is probably one of the better action-adventure, family-friendly, but still mature enough, you know, one of those kinds of movies, young adult sci-fi action-adventure movies, one of the better ones I've ever seen. And I think to this day, it's the best movie that has good representation of video games, even though it's not actually based on a video game, nor is it based on actual uh, video games that exist now. It's based on VR headsets that are very similar to what we will probably see in the future, and it uses a colossal metric fuckton of licensing and uh, characters and things that a lot of us grew up with, and it did it really well. Here's the thing, though, right? Ready Player One is my favorite up there with one of my favorite books. Funny enough, Counter Knowledge is too. If anyone's ever read that book, uh, you probably haven't. It's a very small book in size and in popularity. Um, so I'm a nerd. I, 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 I can range from reading something like this global sensation action sci-fi fantasy about gaming to this um, really stoic book about, uh, about counter-intellectualism, right? Um, I'll admit I don't read as much as I used to. Um, I I mean, I still read a metric fuck ton of, um, science stuff and, and articles and online stuff and just general research and, and a lot of interviews and articles and things I find interesting. Um, but I don't read a lot of fiction books as much as I, as much as I want to. I just, I don't push myself as much anymore and that's on me. There's no other reason. Uh, partially time and partially narcolepsy. I will say that much. Like, I can only read it during the day. If I read it at night, which is when I usually like to read, like, I, that's when I prefer to. But with narcolepsy, that's a no-go. I mean, I can't make it but five or ten pages, even if I love the book. And I, two to three of those pages are lost in in, in the process because I'm actually drifting off quickly. And that's just a tedious process. And during the day, I'm I'm working too much or you know, gaming too much. I will say that's, it's an unfortunate habit that I've uh, reinforced, but, um, but I still make sure I find ways to read and learn new things. 
And um, I still always have a book on hand that I slowly chip away at. Uh, But no, it's not as good as I'd like it to be. But who knows? I'm young. Life can change. Habits will change. Um, But I think reading is always good to have um, because it is stories. It is, and it can be incredible and it can be immersive and it is offline and it can be done anywhere. You can always pop out a book. You can always take a book with you. So, yeah. That was a long rant about books and just me listing some of my favorites because I've never really talked about that. And people don't... It's funny. People, like, when they listen to my music or they watch my films or something, they're like... I've had people ask me, I'm like, they're like, have you read a lot of books? Or, like, are you well-read? And I never think of myself as that. And then I look at my bookshelf and <laughs> I think about all the times I've read most of the books to completion or at least started them, maybe not able to finish them because they weren't for me or because life happened. I move every three years. As soon as I move, everything I'm in the middle of doing gets canceled. That's just how it is because it's so time and energy consuming to move, you know? There are two or three books I was reading one at, at the same time. And when I moved, not only did I stop reading them just because I literally had no time and there's too many other things on my mind, but by the time I got settled into my new home and I wanted to pick those books up again, it just wasn't the same. So it's very easy for me to follow the habit, needless to say. Gaming is a lot more fun for me. <laughs> I'm a fucking big kid. I, I'm not the... I, I love a book when it pulls me in, right? And I won't put it down. I could read it, not in a day. I'm not like that good. But I could read it in a week or two. But, oh, man... That's like, I mean, finding that book that could do that is the harder part. So I, I have to strengthen that. That's one thing for sure. But anyway, so adaptations are important in media, right? Video games do it or video games take inspiration. What's cool about video games is they're quite original. But unlike a book, unlike a film, unlike a television show, unless they're doing a choose-your-own-adventure book, there's no player choice. There's no agency in the audience. They don't get to select what happens next or they don't get to make executive decisions that could affect what happens next whether or not they know it is of their volition, their choice. So, that is definitely one of those things. Um... And so, the reason why I want to speak on, that was a whole tangent that you probably didn't need to hear, but oh well, it's there now. Um, But the, the interesting thing about it in terms of social engagement, like I mentioned in games, and I mentioned a few games in particular, that have some great social features, right? Because that, that component is important. It's a reason why we have book clubs. There's a reason why people talk about their favorite TV show online. There's a reason why we have movie theaters that have multiple seats. You know? It is just as enjoyable for me to watch a movie. It's actually more enjoyable for me to watch a movie with people whom I care about than it is to watch it alone. I love watching movies at all in general. I'm a film guy. It's never going to be a problem for me. 
I will always sit down and try a new movie when I'm feeling it. But for me, movies are a very emotionally taxing and mentally taxing thing. And I think that's partially because I am a filmmaker. So not only am I watching it for enjoyment or on a surface level to just let me as a human, as an audience member, get absorbed into that world, into that piece of art that sits before me for two hours, but it's also, I make them. So there's a technical aspect that I also am aware of and watching and learning from, right? It's like, I I would assume it's like if a sports player, pick your sport, NBA, NHL, NFL, MLB, whatever. I love the three-letter acronyms, huh? Um, Any of those. It's like if any of those players watched the very sport they play. Which, for baseball, they can't really do because they're always playing. (laughs) I mean, I guess you can't really do that. But if you go and you watch old news, like... I could imagine how enjoyable it would be for somebody who just joins the NBA, who's been watching basketball for X amount of years, to watch a game in person or whatever. They most likely are in love with the sport, right? So they watch it and and have studied it. And, And when you are climbing up that ladder, when you are working and dedicating your craftsmanship and your love and your passion, and it doesn't matter what it is, people, as long as it doesn't harm anybody, I think... If you are pursuing something you love and you think is benefiting the world for the better and yourself for the better, then keep on doing it. The people who say don't do that and just do what's safe are the people who will die with nothing to live for. So, honestly, if that is the only wisdom I can impart in my the rest of my life, <laughs> that is one I will do. Do not work for and towards something that does not matter for you. I think that's something to always be considerate of. And to always appreciate the people who are striving and working towards what they do, want to do, and what they love to do. To support them however is is necessary and however you can um, is always good. Doesn't mean you have to love them. Doesn't mean you have to always be for them. It just means at least appreciate and acknowledge and understand what they're trying to do. And be okay with the fact that it may be different from what you're trying to do. It's hard. It's hard to be an artist. It's hard to make something original. It's hard to put yourself out there and to put something you care about and create out to the world for them to see. There is a bravery behind all artists who decide to publish their work, whatever it may be. Video game, uh, uh, painting, you know. Props for a film set. Texturing for a scenic design. Blocking for for the stage. Writing for a book, for a screenplay, for a video game, for whatever. There's writing in everything. Um... Rapping, singing, playing a musical instrument, making a film and any component of that, whether you're a grip or whether you're a sound op or whether you're the director or the cinematographer, doesn't matter. They're all artists. They're all craftsmen. uh, craftsmen. They're all very, very skilled at what they do or are striving to get better at what they do every day. And in the process of doing so, they allow the work the love, the passion that they have be publicly exhibited 
for general audience and masses to consume, whether or not they understand the work or the technical expertise that went into it. And to have that bravery, I think, should always be at least acknowledged and appreciated, regardless of how you feel about the art or the artist themselves. See, I told you guys, even when I'm talking about video games, I'll spit some wisdom. So anyway, um, all that to say, <laughs> that was a massively odd tangent, considering that's not even what I was going to talk about, but it's just how it went. I was just going to briefly mention adaptations and stuff, and then I went on the books and art and all that. I guess that's where my mind is right now. I'm trying to reaffirm the fact that I'm doing good work here with my artistry. Um, <laughs> it's challenging, for sure. But here's the thing. When it comes to video games, with that interactivity that's so vital, because we all need a community, we all need an audience for these things. Like I said, you go to the movie theaters, you're with people. And, and like I've said, I love watching movies with the people I love. Um, because or care about, at least, who I'm friends with, because, yeah, I can watch it and enjoy it for myself and look at it from an analytical standpoint, but I get the bonus benefit of when I'm watching a movie, especially one I, I like, I get to watch them watch it and see their reactions. When someone's watching a film that they get into quickly, it's not hard to, f to figure out how they feel about it. They let their guard down. They're not putting any mask, no facade. They're not hiding things. They don't have to articulate any words. It's all the sounds, the gasps, the oohs, the ahs, the eyes, the rolling of the eyes, you know? The jumping out of the seat, the leaning back, the leaning forward. All of these body language indicators describe, possibly suggest how they feel and how they are processing what's in front of them. As a filmmaker, I'm looking at that from a technical standpoint, thinking, okay, how do I get somebody to feel that way when they're watching a movie of mine in the future? And then also if they love it and they're, you know, they're hooked in it, it's something I care about. You know, it's just like when someone cooks someone you food and they love cooking and they made that meal for you and you enjoy the meal. Even if I didn't make that movie, the fact that you appreciated that film for what it was and were just as immersed because first and foremost, I love watching movies as much as I love making them. But like I said, it's a very emotional, exhaustive and mental toll for me. I'm not gonna say, I'm not like I need to go to therapy every time I watch a movie, but it's just one of those things where there are, I have friends and family who could just pop in a movie like, okay, let's just watch a movie. I'm like, hold, oh, hold the fucking phone. Nah, -uh, you can't do shit like that to me. Anybody who knows me knows you can't just drop. Very rarely, very rarely. I mean, sometimes I'm in a very good mood or I'm in a fuck it, let's just do something mood. But for the most part, you can't just come in and drop a movie. It sucks. <laughs> But you got to give me 24-hour notice. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's just one of those, um, it's just one of those like, hey, can we watch a movie tomorrow night or tomorrow morning or whatever? And let me process. Let me watch a trailer. Let me get ready for it. Don't ask me why. That's how it's always been. And I used to watch movies every night, but it was just one of those things where I always have to prepare myself because I really allow myself to go into it that's why i like tv because tv i could partially get into it i could still love it just as much 
and, and follow the story, but it's bite sizes. It's cut up. It's not as taxing to me for whatever reason. So I will often try to watch TV during the week or with fam. You know, if it's a quick thing, like, oh, let's continue this show, let's continue the episode, especially if it's comedy. You know, blow some steam off, relax, forget about our problems. That's how that is for me. But films, even if it's a film that makes me happy, other than comedy films or films I've seen before, that's different. But with my family, my family doesn't like rewatching movies very often. You know, later, a year or two later, sometimes months later, that may be the case. Okay. I apologize for that tangent. I just decided to cut it there and call that just a little sidestep segment, like a little side quest (laughs) the love of artistry um that's a still a very important point to make even though it doesn't directly have to do with video game community um i've made episodes on artistry and the importance of accepting and all that so i've talked about these things before and i'll always mention it and bring it up because that's what i care about and i think it's sometimes hard for people to justify why they should care about video games or what they should think about in the grander scheme there are people who love to play video games and want to talk about and hear about that and there are people who don't give a shit and so i'm trying to toe the line and remind the people who love it other aspects to it and why patience also needs to be put upon uh, the developers because it's a hard thing to make a video game it is not an easy task it's not easy to make anything like that it's not easy to live life and do stuff at all. In fact, I'm tired of people thinking anything is just that easy. But it's one of those things you don't understand or you don't know until you do some research. And I don't know or understand all of it, but I can at least appreciate that there's more complexity to it than just, oh, why didn't they add this? I made a lyric video the other day for a colleague of mine. It's a great lyric video. It's very, very in-depth. It's a five and a half minute lyrical massacre of a rap song, and it's phenomenal. You know, it's a high octane, fast lyrical rap, dense with the wordplay. And when I do a lyric video, I manually input each word, time sync and animate it all, and then make sure it's all kind of flows together. It takes time, right? And I use the program InShot on my phone. It's just. It's just what I've been using. I'm used to it. Of course, I have Premiere and and Final Cut. I use those for other things, but for text and lyric videos, I've just so far found it easier to use InShot, especially since my phone is on the go, and I'm often making lyric videos in between and on the go. So it's just more convenient for me. Of course, if I ever find something that's easier or more efficient or better, obviously, I'll start using that. But I really love InShot for its... uh, accessibility that's not an ad i'm just letting you guys know what i use because now i'm gonna let you know it took me 10 and a half hours to complete the lyric video for a five minute song there's hundreds and hundreds of these green bubbles and lines and things that are either single words or phrases a handful of words or whatever It was dense, it was extremely complex, and it drove me to near insanity. It was worth it because I made a great product, um, and people are going to love it. But um, when you watch it, you have no idea how long and how hard it was for me to do that. 
So everything you watch or experience in life, just understand there's someone behind there making it or putting it together or making sure it is of quality. So when you are doing it, now sometimes they fuck up, sometimes they're not doing the job right, and sometimes they just don't care. And that's unfortunate. But here's the difference, I think. We can always tell when somebody at least cares or puts their best in it, even in art form. You can tell in an album or in a lyric video or in a song or in a movie, or in a TV show, or in a video game, you can usually tell that there is good intention. Well, obviously, they're so hard to make. They take so much time and money and resources and energy, emotional, mental, and physical time and energy, that um, obviously they care enough. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. But... That doesn't mean there are people who aren't lazy or who do half-ass attempts and just don't really give a shit. There is that. So you have to be wary of that. But for the most part, you can tell when someone at least tries their damnedest. Even if they don't hit it on the mark. Or even if something isn't perfect to your liking. So I always try to have patience for that. In gaming, I have... A smaller amount of patience towards this one component. And I know I should be more patient, but it comes to out-of-game community, which is what the last segment was going to be. But I'm glad I talked about artistry, just to allow you guys to kind of understand more of my thoughts on that, learn more about me, and also maybe have a little more context to why I, I analyze and critique gaming development as well as other facets of entertainment the way I do, because I try to always keep in mind and respect the artisans behind it, right, and the craftsmen, and when I say craftsmen, I mean men and women, right, um, but yeah, everybody involved with the process, I try to at least respect what they've done, what they've attempted, and what they will continue to do, so I'm not taking it out on them, and I never want anyone to think I am. These aren't hit pieces. I hate when people are like, man, fuck the developers. for It's usually not the developer's fault. Of course, they can fuck up. And we have to tell them when they've made a mistake. Let them learn from it so they don't do it again. Especially if that mistake is actually bad to the community. Something that harms the community, like microtransactions. Which isn't usually a mistake. Um, right? Something like that. If it's a bug, it's a bug. You guys got to realize these games are so goddamn complex, there's going to be bugs. There's just no way. These games are getting more and more dense and complex. And yeah, there are programs that can help detect bugs on a surface level. Yeah, there are betas and alphas, and that will help make it playable and polished. But there's always going to be a little, a few bugs. When you see them, report them. Don't just assume that they know that they're there. They have already probably played the game more than you ever will in your lifetime. And they've already played it through states that are so rough they're not even playable. And gotten through the worst of the bugs that made the game unable to be shipped. So don't think that... That's another thing. People are like, do they not even play their game? No, they don't play their game. Think that through for a second. If you spent years and months building the thing... Testing it, getting through all the bugs and the broken mechanics, making it playable, and then replaying it multiple times, especially if you're a quality assurance person, multiple times, or at least once before it's finished or shipped, you probably don't want to play it again. It's just not fun. 
Why would it be fun? You made it. You've already consumed it. That's <laughs> when people are like, do you not love your own work? Of course I love my own work. Otherwise, I wouldn't put it out there. And I always respect it and appreciate what I was able to do at the time. Does that mean I'm always bumping my own music or watching my own films? No. Every once in a while, especially when I'm about to release the new thing, when I'm about to release a new album, I'll go back and listen to the old album for that week. Played a couple times. Remember? Oh, yeah, I did do that. Huh. That's cool. I did a great job. This is about to be better. You know what I mean? Or when I'm, about, when I'm in the process of making a new film, I will go back and watch my own films. I will hype myself up. I'm like, God damn, I did that at age 15. God damn, I did that at age 22. Okay. How do I push this further? It's more of a process to respect what I've already done and to analyze what I can do a little better. But no, in between that time frame, anywhere between six to ten months, no, I don't watch, especially films. I, I mean, I've, I went a whole two years without watching one of my own films again. Not because I hate it, just because, first off, I've already seen it so many fucking times when I was editing it. And then also, just didn't, wasn't in a hurry, you know? Man, music's the same way. I spend so much time writing and making music. I've, I don't listen to my own music. I listen to other people's music. How would, how would that benefit anything if I'm just listening to my own music? I know how I sound. I, I made the damn thing, right? I might have made the beat. Maybe not. But I made the beat. I, I wrote the song. I recorded the song. Hell, I have great memory. I remember when I did it. How would that be good for me? Like I said, every once in a while, just to sit back. And, I, and when I release it, like when I release an album, I, I give it one more listen all the way through on my own in a quiet, calm, dark, cold room without any interruption. I give it one more listen because it's the last time I'll ever be able to listen to it before it's publicly available to everyone on earth. And that's, that's something that takes a lot of thought. So I really enjoy it. I'm like, this is the last time. Because by tomorrow, it's everywhere. And whoever wants to listen to it can find it. You know what I mean? And then, after all the promo and the hype, after the first day of its full release, I then sit down, cold, quiet, calm, dark place, allow myself to clear my mind, and I listen to it one more time as a fully released product doesn't change the music but it changes my interpretation of it because now I've gotten the feedback and now I know how my fans or how people have heard it feel you know what I mean I just think it's a I just do that and it's a way I reflect so in video games and in development I would assume they don't do that just because I can only imagine how much time it takes to work on that stuff so that whole bug checking quality assurance yeah sometimes they're so bad and the reports come in and they don't do anything, that's when they fuck up and they need to get on it. But I don't think we villainize them for not getting on it fast enough. We just tell them, do better. But we don't get mad. We don't say, you're terrible. You're the worst developers ever. They're probably not. They've got life. They've got family. They have to pay their, their, their bills. And they have to make the art that they see fit. And sometimes they're told by their publisher or by who's ever in charge of them to do something else, regardless of how they feel. So, yeah. But I get it. We're passionate of our games. I understand completely. And this is where out-of-game community is vital. 
Because what that does is that allows two things. First off, that allows a community to thrive regardless of they're currently playing the game. Video games have this social engagement that allows you to feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself, right? And with that, that doesn't just mean when you turn on the game. Because of social media and because of the influence of such, we can now be a part of our favorite games and the community and keep up with it. From the developer and publisher themselves, updates, patches, content down the pipeline, roadmaps, all that, which is vital. Um, as well as the people we play with, whether we make new friends or whether we find new friends, and whether we're following fan pages that make memes of our favorite games and the characters and the events that happen in them, or gameplay clip highlights on YouTube, or people who play it on YouTube. Discords and, and um, you know, Reddits of the game, the news... That all allows a community to thrive even when they don't have the controller or the keyboard and mouse in hand. Or whatever else they use. That's what that does. It's absolutely essential for this day and age. Couldn't do it without it. Back in the day, people had Game Informer and other magazines like that. And what, what was great about that is even though it was editorialized, there was still community... Uh, Thoughts at the end of it, where somebody gave their opinion and it was published. And then um, there were reviews and there were news and things to look out for, right? And then the mid, early to mid-2000s, I guess for like 2000, what, 5, 6, and 7, that started to transition to online more and more. Well, there were still physical publications and those were always great to have. Um... And of course, it just became more and more interactable and easy to do online. And so we did, as a community. We, we transitioned to that phase. And it's great. It means you can still keep up and watch and enjoy and consume things and learn things about the game that you love so very much or the community you love without even having to play the game. Because if you don't have the time or if you're currently not at home able to play your game, but you get some free time to kill and you want to be a part of that community, or you want to let your buddies know you're going to be on at this time, well, why the hell not? Excuse any background noise. My room that I record here in, at home is privy to any kind of background noise going on outside, because it's right up against some doors that haven't been fully sealed. Trust me, it's not always fun. So anyway, um, that's important. That out of community experience is vi or out of game, I mean, community experience is vital to the success and the longevity of a game. I th I think it is at least. I mean, maybe I don't know everything. I don't. I'm teasing, but really, for example, I was visiting my girlfriend. Right, we're long distance. And so when I was visiting her, I didn't have the means to play my console. And when I wanted to, I just had to kind of suck it up and not. I played other things. Um, but, you know, that's just how it is. But I did watch videos. YouTube. Uh, videos on, on the games 
keep up with the community. Of course, it made me want to play my games even more. So that was something to deal with. But it was great. I was still able to engage and interact with the, with the games I loved and the communities I loved, even if I couldn't play it. Even if I had to, to wait till I got home. And why this aspect is so important for developers to really key in and understand is because this is the main pipeline to, to provide information to your community about what you are working on. As I discussed in Live Service Games, it's one of those things where, um, regardless of if it's live service now, if it has any kind of multiplayer online component, which when that does, that means that the developers need you to continuously play or at least have enough people online at any given point. So it warrants them to keep getting resources to improve and build and expand upon their game. Uh, that's pretty obvious, right? Pretty simple logic. Not everyone's going to play your game for all time. Most gamers are currently bouncing between two to three games. Maybe one of them's new. Well, maybe one of them's uh, recent, but what they're kind of binge playing. And then maybe one's an old classic they're, they're going back to. Or that one that their buddy is playing, so they're pulled into that one to, to keep up with their friends. You never know. And any given month, I am rotating between games. It drives some of my friends crazy. Because they're like, man, you're so impatient. No. Because I'll still go back and play those games or I'll finish them. But I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to keep up with it. For these podcasts, but also for my own enjoyment. I love trying new video games. And I'm able to do that because of things like Game Pass and some other stuff. Free-to-play games and weekends and trials and demos and all of it. I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. Of course, when I buy a game, I usually wait for when it's on sale. And I do a lot of research. I I haven't bought a full-price $70 game in a while. I try to keep it to I only buy one or two new full-price games a year. That's not too bad for being a gamer. You know, daily playing video games. So when I do buy new video games, I try to make sure they're not full retail price. They're on sale. They And I try to make sure I have as much research to know that this is a game I'd actually want. Of course, if I don't like it, there is sometimes a refund policy, but you need more time to play that game. I mean, these refund policies are like, after your first three hours of gameplay, well, that's horseshit. I mean, most games, to kind of learn and understand if you like it, takes way more than three hours. So, but that's okay. But game community outreach is important, and Halo Infinite fucked up. 343 dropped the ball on that. It's a very simple process. You don't have to tell us exactly what's coming down and when it's going down. This is something I've learned in marketing my own music and films. I can't always tell everybody exactly what's happening, because here's the thing. First off, I don't want to. I'm trying to savor and save pieces of it so it's not all known by the time it comes out. If I do a teaser and have so many singles and so much content on the album before it even releases, what's 
why would you go listen to it if you feel there's probably nothing new? Or if you feel like the first 10 minutes of listening to a 30-minute album you've already heard? I try not to do that. On the downside of that, sometimes that means I'm not able to post as much teasers, though I still I think I have a good, healthy rate. And then also it means I'm posting between two or three songs that you guys have already heard. Maybe different segments of that song, but it's still the same song. Now, you'll you see a little more in the final month before promo release. A little more diversity. And only 30 seconds to a minute. So in total, there's only about five minutes total worth of songs and snippets. And sometimes a minute to two of those are repeated, just posted later, months apart from each other. Out of a 30-minute album, out of a 25-minute album, or whatever. That's not too shabby to keep people consistently engaged and remind them that it's coming, you know? So I get it. Game devs can't always tell you, you know, can't always tell you what features and, and, and systems and modes and methods are coming down the pipeline. They can tell you what they're working on, but they can't give you a guarantee on the release date. And they can't tell you everything for multiple reasons. That's okay. But at some point, they can. some point, they're further along in that process. And they're allowed to, and they have more of an understanding. And this is post-game launch, of course. This is new content and updates and, and things. And, and this is where a roadmap is vital. I don't get why a lot of games don't do this. But games that are live service that require you, especially if they're free to play, that require your time and attention, roadmaps are vital. They are very simple. If you notice, a lot of roadmaps don't even give you all the details. They give you the the next three months is more solid. Okay, this is what's for sure coming in three months. Obviously, they have it probably almost finished by then, you know. And then the next three months, you know, faint general targets, you know, semi-specific, semi-reasonable. And then the next year worth of content goals. Showing that, making sure it's seen by the community consistently for when it's released and published is vital. Because first of all, if you do it sooner rather than later, that also helps. It tells us the simplest thing. It's a work in progress. Stay tuned. Look at what's coming. A lot of the times what's coming is stuff that people were asking for. Right? Usually they'll say the general balances, bug fixes, and general gameplay improvement. Okay, great. Good to know you guys are going to keep doing that, right? Okay, this many maps. Okay, this many modes. This many features, characters, items, weapons, whatever the game may, you know, need. That's good to have. And then, of course, a release date or a general targeted release date between September and October 2022. People will wait for an abundantly long time. Gamers are patient as hell. And if you don't think that, then you don't understand how the gamers work. I genuinely think that because, yeah, gamers can be impatient and sure, they could be rude, especially in a game when they're waiting for it to load. DVD, I'm looking at you. But for the most part, they're very patient. And when they see something that's coming down the line they want, they will wait. And out-of-game community is vital to keeping that 
fire, that marketing, that excitement, and general hype alive. And it's vital to accurately communicating what's coming. And I think more devs need to pay attention to that. So we've discussed general social community for gaming, the importance of understanding and respecting artistry, uh, out-of-game community, social media, posting, roadmaps, communicating with uh, your players that you're working on it, that you understand that you hear them. And it's not just that, though, right? It doesn't just mean you say, okay, I hear you, and then never do anything about it. Just like in a good relationship, you don't just say shit to placate and make people feel good and, and okay about whatever to, to neutralize the immediate conflict. You follow through. Otherwise, you're just going to let it grow and fester. And cracks in the foundation create a structural uh, uh, vulnerability that isn't needed. That is dangerous to many. Right? So yeah, that's that's where I'm getting at. Like That's what we have to realize. And as a community, to vocalize and to better focus our critique and criticism into channels where not only is it heard, but it's more accessible for the developers to act upon. Usually bigger games, and, and smaller ones, have a social media handler. And that's fine, you know, they're to give information and in, interact with the community. And usually, I think it should be more than one person. But, um, it's constantly, uh, you know, a road, because it, it, it's a constantly rotating job. It's, it's 24-7, I would imagine, for bigger games, especially like Call of Duty. And they probably do have an entire marketing and social media team plenty of people that can log in and cover this and that and help right and usually they have their own tech support channels and pages and other various ways but so that that's one component but it's also we as gamers if we have a genuine problem your game's buggy well they know that like i said they've already quality assurance checked it but they're not still consistently always playing it at that point now that it's a released product and they got it to that stage and and they should make it doable. They should make it playable, and they should try to aim to reduce the amount of bugs. There's it's a possibility, but it's tricky. And the bigger, the more complex, or the more people evolved. That's the other thing people don't get. It's a multi-million-dollar budget. How do they not? Because with that, you have not twenty people playing and testing it on a smaller scale. Not a hundred people playing and testing it. Or, I mean, 20 people that have a, that make it, 100 people that make it, not just play and test it. But you have thousands, three, four, five, six hundred, eight hundred, a thousand or more people making the game. And the more people you add, the more things might get lost in the weeds. It doesn't mean that they're not good at their job. It just means it's harder to keep a chain of command, to keep clear and concise communication, and to pass on privy data. Especially when you're working between multiple studios. I mean, you look at the development of a COD game. Look at actually all the secondary studios that help develop one. Once again, here it goes, back to comparing COD. And then look at something like, um, well, Hell Let Loose. Hell Let Loose is made by one developer. Go check out my latest review on that. That game is phenomenal. There's hardly any bugs, and then when there are, there are very few. Yeah, some visual bugs, some clipping, some here and there. 
but that affect gameplay? Uh, not really any. Yeah, some optimization improvements will could be nice. Um, but it runs stable, even if it only, even if only uh, when you're pushing it at good graphics keeps it at 60, even on a PC with a 3070 Ti, you know, and a Ryzen 5 uh, 5600X. But the, the thing is, who cares? Like, it's still stable 60. It's not fluctuating. It's not, like, marketed as, oh, we could play at 60 frames and then it dips between 40 and 50 at all times. Gamers don't really have a... I mean, 30 frames isn't desired anymore. At bare minimum, be 60 frames with the new hardware and all these new games. But at that, don't have it drop or fluctuate dramatically. Have it between, you know, a handful of frames here and there. Five or six frames at a given point when a lot's going on for a few seconds isn't a big deal. But there are games that will stutter and stumble and fluctuate between 50 and 40 and 30 and 20 and 40 and 30 and 50 throughout the entire... just constantly... To the point where it makes some people motion sick because of so much stuttering and jitteriness, and it makes it unplayable. Because when those frames aren't being delivered nor registered properly, you cannot act accurately to the information presented in front of you. Whereas if you're an online multiplayer shooter like Hell Let Loose, someone else is. Because if it's stable for them, you're fucked. Here's the thing though, Hell Let Loose doesn't have this problem. You can reduce some of your graphics on PC and possibly bump up your frame rate to 100, maybe 120, edging it out a little bit. At that point, it does become a little stuttery, but not too bad. Um, but it stays locked. I mean, it's a pretty smooth 60 regardless of how you're playing and what you're playing on, which is good. So it's really not that much of a problem. Now, of course, it would be great to get up to 120 frames or 144 for a lot of us and to keep that stable, and that might be coming down the road, and that would just make things even more enjoyable and buttery smooth. But the fact that it's stable is key. I played plenty of games where it, it, it could give me 200 frames per second, which is phenomenal, uh, but for like four seconds, and then it all comes down to 30. That kind of drop-off makes you think your game is freezing. If it drops 170 frames within one second. So, on PC, it's just some of your settings and how you, how you optimize some stuff, but, but then it's also how the game's optimized. Um... But my point is that that game doesn't have as many bugs. Now, that game's uh, plenty big. And they, the maps are much, much bigger than any Call of Duty game. So you'd think there must be some layering and issues there. And there are. Stalingrad and Hell Let Loose just doesn't work. It is just not optimized. It's the only time you'll see actual bugs and crashes. It's something about that map breaks the game. And when people use that term in gaming, they mean... There's some component, some variable at play that fucks up the entire code or fucks up or pressure points a lot of other things and causes essentially a critical failure within the game where everything just kills. Like, it just dies. doesn't kill. It dies. Meaning the game crashes. Or people get booted. Or it becomes unplayable. It's a very unfortunate thing. It only happens on that map. Something just with the optimization they gotta fix. There are plenty of other issues in other games that can happen like that. Um, so what Call of Duty does well is it's usually playable. And actually pretty good. It's usually stable frame rate, great gunplay, and it's pretty smooth. Jitteriness and, and poor optimization is never really the issue. But bugs, which is different, some visual and some gameplay-wise imbalances and stuff are bad. 
clipping, uh, just glitching out, unable to register certain things, and to the point where you can't hit your target. Or you can't fire properly. A perfect example of quality assurance probably just not being utilized at all was Battlefield 2042. I'm not blaming the quality assurance testers. I assume they're trying to do their job. I just assume they weren't given the resources to do it. That game was rushed. I played the beta of Battlefield 2042, and that game didn't work when I played it on my PC. I was just like, okay, this PC is plenty powerful. If a new game that's optimized, that has all these things, I know it's a lot in the game, so maybe it stutters here and there, and I know it's beta, so I'm giving it some benefit of the doubt, but Jesus fucking Christ, the game didn't work. In the few moments it did, it wasn't very enjoyable anyway. But balancing the gameplay wasn't like Battlefield 1 or Battlefield 4. It was boring. It was a walking simulator. It was confusing, it was cluttery, and it didn't make a lot of sense, and it felt like the graphics were shittier than I've ever seen in a Battlefield game. There was no immersion. Gunplay was just finicky, felt like a mobile game. And then even after all that, it hardly ran or worked anyway. It crashed, it logged me out, it, it didn't. And that was a month and a half away from its full release. I knew damn well there was nothing that was going to come of the full release that could be any more beneficial. Better optimization, less crashing, and a little less stuttering, maybe, but other than that, no. Like I've said before, the only time I was proven wrong was Vanguard. The game's not a good game, but I will say their open beta was terrible. Sound design, visual glitches, poor optimization, everything was running poorly. I'm like, ain't no way this is what I'm about to see in a month. And I didn't. Everything that I just pointed out was fixed and worked beautifully so the game actually ran like a dream it just wasn't fun to play <laughs> which is a bigger issue than the actual optimization so these things happen and so sometimes we get mad and we're like how could you miss that you're such a big studio well because they have because in a call of duty development cycle they have the primary studio infinity ward sledgehammer treyarch they should cut sledgehammer from that cycle and just make them a supporting studio and then they have Raven Software, High Moon Studios, Bob's Toys, and like two others. All supporting, utilizing each other's resources, dipping in and helping. There's a lot of people. That's a fuck ton of people and communication. And the more you add, the harder it is to ensure the proper communication channels are being utilized and that the proper information is getting to the right place at the right time. Therefore, some oversight and some things that are overlooked and not realized happen. That's natural. The bigger the thing is, the more that could happen. That's partially why I think MCU is as incredible as it is. Somehow, they're as big as they are, they do as much as they do, and they're still pretty fucking solid and consistent. Sure, they stumble, but that happens with everything. It's incredible what they're able to pull off so efficiently and do so well. So, yeah. So I don't, I don't demonize the devs or the quality assurance people. I mean, yeah, got to do your job. Got to really make sure you're advocating for whatever you need. Because sometimes Cyberpunk, Battlefield 2042, those are just not acceptable. And they should have never been released. But that's also on the publisher. It's on EA for releasing Battlefield 2042 in November. They could have pushed it back. Why not push it back to March? Nothing releases in March. You're not competing with anyone. Yeah, sure, you missed the holidays. Um... But make it a discounted price. Make the, f dare I say, make the first week of its actual release cheaper. That that doesn't make a lot of sense. But here's the other thing: it's Battlefield. If it played well and ran well, uh, people would buy it. It's Battlefield. 
I get it if it's a new IP and you want it to get good sales because you may never get good sales. But if it's Battlefield or if it's a Call of Duty or if it's a Halo, you don't need to worry about November sales. It's better. I'm not going to lie. You get more money from it. I understand that. It's the holidays. You have Black Friday, then you have Christmas and Hanukkah and all these other holidays that other denominations and people and cultures celebrate. But in America, which is where they primarily market everything, that's when things are cheaper and that's when everyone's buying a gift for somebody, especially children. And these games are also, you know, targeting uh, kids. God, that sounded weirder than I meant it to. But, you know, they're marketing towards uh, people between the ages of, the you know, 11 and 16. 18. Um, but, yeah. God can, God can release in the middle of July. And if you don't think people aren't going to buy it, then you're mistaken. COD is just that powerful and that influential. As is Battlefield. Though right now, Battlefield's reputation is shot to shit. Doesn't mean they can't bounce back. They've bounced back before. Plenty of times. They've had these kinds of things happen before. They'll be okay, I promise you. A game like Hell Let Loose was ballsy. It did release in July. Would I have advised that? Actually, yeah. Because it's a first-person shooter that's of a tactical type that is being released on PC, and at, and at the time, eventually, they said consoles. I think it was just a year later, right? Crossplay, But it's a World War II tactical shooter. It's challenging, and it takes a lot of communication and effort. It is not your kickback for 20 minutes and just have a good old time on a couple matches. That's what Call of Duty is, and that's fine for that. Hell it loose, you dedicate the time, the energy, and the resources to, to play it. So releasing it then allowed allowed no competition from something that would completely uh, squash it. I think that's, you know, why they did that. Titanfall is another good example of that. The first Titanfall came out in March. Between, uh, between well, February, oddly enough, of 2022 was a great time for games. I don't know why. I think just because things got pushed back, so they couldn't just, in good faith, release things in their intended fall-winter release slate, so they just pushed it back a month to polish things and still get it out in a timely manner. So we had Elden Ring, Sifu, for, uh, Horizon Forbidden West, right? Because Zero Dawn was the first one, and a couple others. Um, so February, for the f Dying Light 2, for the first time ever in my life, I saw February being a heavy-hitting month for new or big games that brought in a lot of dollars. Elden Ring being the most predominant one, of course. Um, that was cool to see. But usually, February isn't like that. Uh, a couple games. The Ubisoft does a good time in February. Ubisoft's smart. Ubisoft drops their Tom Clancy games in February and March. Rainbow came out in December, but um, I'm going off memory here. Division 1, Ghost Recon Wildlands, and For Honor all came out in February and March. And they're all solid games. I don't like Division 1 that much, but For Honor, Ghost Recon Wildlands are great games. So, um, but you don't see any games released in July. June, July, August. You don't see that summer stretch. You see some in May. Why? Well, probably because they're developing a lot, and that's just how it works. But I, marketing, they just want to get it in fall. But here's the thing for me. It's like, why not? 
Fortnite came out in July. They knew they couldn't compete with anything when it first came out. So in the dead of summer, when everybody's wondering what new games they can play, because there's a whole three to four month drought of new quality games coming out, a free-to-play game that they could play that looks pretty fun, that they could pick up and try. Well, first it was $40, a PvE game no one was buying, and then they made the free-to-play Battle Royale mode, um, copying PUBG. It was ingenious. It was ingenious to allow it to be free, and it was ingenious to just have it there and pay for marketing. On my Xbox banner, I saw it, and I was bored that month. I'm like, well, shit, I ain't got nothing to do. I wish I could go back to those days where I have nothing to do. <laughs> Not really. Um, I'm like, okay, let me try it. Fall Guys went free to play in the dead of summer. Blew up in popularity. Multiverses came out in the dead of summer, free to play. It has 10 million concurrent players right now. Uh, maybe not concurrent, but 10 million total players, I'm sorry. Not concurrent. 10 million players for a game that just came out last week. Yeah, it's free to play, so it's easy to access, and it's everywhere, and it's cross-play, but still. Wow. Right, the free-to-play, so low barrier of entry, but there's no reason to not have a game release in spring or summer. Because if you only slate every single fucking game in fall and winter, good luck trying to get your game noticed. And for the past 20 years, COD, for the, well, for the past 10, 15 years, COD's come out annually. So either October or November for the entire month of when COD, the week before and the month after when COD releases, don't try to compete with that. The only ones that can are Battlefield and Halo. If, if, if they gave Titanfall the time it took for Titanfall 2 specifically. Phenomenal game. One of the best multiplayer games you'll ever play. If you can play it. It's been having issues lately. If they gave Titanfall 2 the resources to for marketing. It's a phenomenal game. They didn't need it to do anything else for the game. If they allowed it to have its own little window. It already had a fan base from Titanfall 1. They already piqued interest. They didn't need to release it. First off, they could have still released it in fall. It would have been just fine. It actually would have helped its sales and helped people get on board. Because that year, COD and, I think, Battlefield weren't doing... Well, no. I, I lie. Battlefield was phenomenal. COD was terrible. Dishonored 2 also came out, which is dope. But, um... COD came out. No one, No one wanted it. I think it was Infinite Warfare, which, uh, in hindsight, people are like, this is a fine game. This is just good. Uh, the problem was, the marketing fucking shot it to shit. No one wanted to play it, so they didn't for a while. Um, it just didn't do as well. Battlefield 1, however, oh my god. Talk about community. As I said earlier, that game had community backing it, and man oh man, not only was it a, just a phenomenal game, and still is to this day through and through, just one of the... I think it's one of the best Battlefield games and one of the better FPS multiplayer games out there. Which is hard to say for a more modern AAA game. Of that caliber. Modern Warfare 2019, Battlefield 1. Those are... The, those exhibit why people invest in Battlefield and Call of Duty. Those games are phenomenal. If you, even if you took the franchise name away from it, they still stand to be incredible games, right? So that game did good. The problem is EA has, you know, Battlefield and Titanfall in their in their control. Respawn, the phenomenal developers behind Titanfall and Jedi Fallen Order and a handful of other things now. 
but they sent Titanfall 2 a week before Battlefield 1 released. The same weekend that COD released. And the reason why they did that is to just, just steal and cripple COD a little more. Titanfall 2 is a phenomenal sequel that blew everyone out of the water because of its incredible multiplayer design, its concept, its expansion on the titans, the weapons, the upgrades, its stability, its gameplay fluidity, and its general fun. It is so fun to just keep playing that game. That's one of those you don't just you just can't put down. It doesn't get boring. It's one of the best multiplayer experiences you'll have. So is Battlefield 1, but the thing about Battlefield 1 is as soon as the new Battlefield drops, no one plays it. Titanfall 2, if it got the continuation and the support and didn't have the rough rough launch as well as the loss of support over time because they forced Respawn to make Apex Legends instead of Titanfall 3 or expand upon Titanfall 2, let them make Titanfall 3. It's been rumored that they're working on it, which is good. Let EA learn a lesson. People like Titanfall 2. They now love the universe because Apex Legends is from that. Apex dropped in March, by the way, or February, just so you know. So anyway, those kinds of things are very important to the community t that we need to understand. Games are released at very specific times and months for other for reasons. So smaller games that have no way of competing with the biggers, you know, the biggie ones, um, they, uh, they release in other months because there's no reason to try to even compete. Kind of like you won't see many movies released within April. Because so far, that's when Marvel has dropped their Avenger movies for the past three years. When they were. I guess there's no more Avenger movies, so we don't have to worry about it as much. I don't think we got a Marvel movie this April. But, you know, they drop two or three movies a year, so it's kind of hard to dodge them. But you just don't do it on the same weekend as a Marvel movie if you can help it. It's not worth the risk. You will lose money. Curse of La Llorona thought otherwise. You might be asking me, what the hell is that, Psychic? That's a movie in the Conjuring universe of all things, which is the most profitable horror film franchise now. One of the most. I think Saw actually tops it, but Conjuring is one of the most profitable film franchises of all time, and it's only five or six movies in, in its entire universe thing. They're all pretty great. First three Conjuring... First two Conjuring, phenomenal in my opinion. Um... First Annabelle's alright. Second Annabelle's actually pretty solid. Third Annabelle. Third Annabelle was creepy. I liked it. None was fun. Creepy, not great. Uh, and then a couple, and then I never saw Curse of La I guess I do need to see that. And the third Conjuring was okay. It just wasn't as, it wasn't as good as I was hoping for a third Conjuring, you know. The main, the main trilogy. Um, but it's all good. I, it's a, overall, it's a very solid horror franchise. And the first two Conjuring are some of my favorite horror movies of modern horror films. It's just really such good movies. So here's the thing. Curse of La should have done well. First of all, I don't get why they would release that kind of movie in April. For for one. For a Conjuring franchise horror film, why not release that in October? How is that so difficult to do? I heard it wasn't a great movie, but regardless of that, it released the same weekend as Avengers Endgame. And even in their advertisement, they said... You would would you really rather see a superhero movie than see the Curse of La Llorona? I'm like, hell yeah, I would. And I love the Conjuring universe. I'm a horror movie fanatic. But you got me fucked up if you think I'm going to go see the Curse of La Llorona opening weekend instead of Avengers Endgame. 
whoever thought that was a good idea should be fired. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but like, it's those kinds of things that make a big, big impact on how people um, receive your game and how much support you get from that point on in a video game. So I think it's important to just note that release dates and all that are very vital and can change the course of the community in the future. If it doesn't get a good initial launch, it's not going to get initial support. And if it doesn't get support, community dwindles. Battlefield 2042 had a terrible launch. Not because of when it launched, but because of how shitty the game was. It lost its community within a month. In a month, a Battlefield game lost its community. See, the thing about Battlefield, people don't realize, is those games keep their communities for years, especially because of the modding community. But they can they can stay afloat for three or four years till the next one comes out. Two or three years, th four or five, whenever, however long till the next game comes out. They can have a healthy number of players. That isn't even worrisome. They lost almost all their players in a month. And, and what's a real shame is those players lost hundreds of dollars in the process. So that's a very important thing to understand about the community. And I think game developers and publishers and marketers need to understand why not release games in July. Change it up a bit. Doesn't have to be every game, but the fact that every game releases in the fall is exciting, but Christ almighty, that's too many games. Gamers can't buy every game you release, so it doesn't matter. They're still, they'll just buy it later in the year. Or in the next year, if you release three games in fall and they're all $60 and they all want them, most likely they're going to get COD and they might splurge and get another one, but they probably won't. That money will go to microtransactions to COD and then whoever just tried to compete with COD has lost and they're not going to get a sale until March or April or May. And here's the kicker. By that point, that person is still playing COD semi-consistently, most likely. I'm just giving a rough analogy here. This isn't... Uh, fact you know but by that point they may be playing they still might play it semi-consistently but they'll also be looking for a new game to kind of dip their toes in and try have more free to play weekends have more demos and have more discounts and tie them together that's how I bought Hell Let Loose I wanted Hell Let Loose for a long time I already did my research I almost kind of decided I wanted it I just wasn't sure how it would play it looked phenomenal, but you don't know until you play. There is a demo. There's only nine hours left to it. I played the demo, and within the first two hours, I'm like, oh, I have to have this game. This is the most fun I've had in a long time in a, in a game like this. And what wouldn't you, wouldn't you know? 35% off, too. That just made it so much easier. I didn't even have to... Uh, it wasn't an impulse buy because I did a lot of research in it beforehand and tried it, but damn near felt like it. I didn't hesitate for a minute. I'm like, okay, well... I'm buying this game right now. I didn't even finish the time I had on the demo because it was late at night. And by the time the demo ended, which by the time I wake up, the deal was gone. So I'm like, I'm fucking, I'm buying the deal. I was there the whole weekend. So if I saw it on Friday night, I would have been able to have more time. That was just, I wasn't paying attention. But my point is, those kinds of things help. Releasing in a time frame where people can afford it and where people are looking for a new game is more wise than worrying about the fall holiday rush. Especially if you know that a Call of Duty is coming out then, or a Battlefield, or a Halo, or something else that could punch near to that level. There are other games too. If a new Persona came out, a new Final Fantasy, you know, a new fucking whatever. There's plenty of other franchises out there that people love, right? And if they're not free to play, 
and they're full price games and you know that they're going to warrant a lot of people trying them and they're not on Game Pass or anything like that, you bet your ass you better be careful because you're playing with fire and there's no reason to. Elden Ring was smart. Elden Ring could have tried to release in November and it wouldn't have gotten the sales it did. It had to push it back because it wanted to do some polishing and it pushed it back to February. The only thing it had to compete with was genuinely compete with was Horizon. And the thing about that game is that it was a PS5 exclusive, PS4 and PS5 exclusive. So it wasn't really that much of a competition because Elden Ring is a multi-platform game. That's it. So if a COD releases in a July, that will allow more games to get that fall rush. They'll never do that though, so allow the smaller games to release in the summer. People are bored, people are looking for games. Give them discounts, give them demos, give them trials. That's how you get more players in your game. And that's how you game. Uh, that's how you get more uh, sales for your game. That's another aspect of the community that I think has nothing to do with us as community people, but something to be mindful for. We gamers, you know, consistent gamers know that uh, October, November, December are rough months for our wallets. And we know that June, July, August are bone dry. <laughs> it's almost just wise to use those three months to, to save the money that you will inevitably spend in the fall if you're a gamer. Right? That's just the cycle of it because of the, the, the market. And that's okay. But there's no reason to change that up because whenever a game does, they actually last longer. So the community is a vital aspect of all gaming. In and out of the game. Within the game, when you're voice chatting, when you're talking, when you're making friends, outside of the game, when you're in the discords, the reddits, the tabs, the community polls, the roadmaps, the updates... When devs are aware of how to fix their games, make them optimize, release content on a semi-consistent or at least acknowledged time frame or schedule. And when the player in the community is allowed to actually enjoy the game at a release window that is appropriate for their wallet and for their actual time they have to know about the game because they're not distracted by another one. All of these things lead directly into the community and the artistry of all gaming and all art in general is important to always remember when we're looking at it from a community standpoint. Because we as we as gamers, we as the audience, are the most influential thing. And if you really want change, not just a bug fix or a, a map addition, if you really want change, if you really want to stop a game from continuing its practices, you have to stop investing in those practices. You cannot be mad at microtransactions if you're buying them for that specific game. Of course, other games have different pr practices. I don't buy microtransactions for Call of Duty. I haven't. I don't think I ever have, actually. I'm default all the way, baby. And I don't care. Because it doesn't actually affect the progress, and I don't play it enough for the cosmetics. Now, if I learn that Modern Warfare 2 is not going to be... The multiplayer component of it isn't immediately going to go poof after a year. If it lasts for two or three years, and it's as fun as I'm hoping it is. Okay, you might see me invest all of a sudden. Because I'm going to invest the time and energy, and I want to look different if I'm investing that much time. But if I know a new game's coming out in a year, I ain't worrying about it. I already paid for the goddamn game, and I'm having fun with it. So what's it matter? Rocket League is for your play. Rocket League I spend a lot of time in, and I will come back to. And yeah, I unlock cool things too. But I will pay for uh, the pass every few seasons when I see fit. 
Rainbow Six actually has progress directly tied, well, that sort of progress, but gameplay changes tied to its past, so I will invest in that when I am playing Rainbow consistently. So it's different for different things, but I really don't do many microtransactions, and when I do, I make sure it's useful to my time and energy. Especially if I already bought the game. So these are all things to consider going forward, and as the gaming landscape is changing inevitably, these are things to look out for. But community, community, community is vital, and never forget it. Thank you all. Hope you have a great day.